Well, good evening. How you doing this evening? Good. Good to see you, those of you that aren't out spring breaking. So happy spring to everybody. It's beautiful out there, isn't it? Well, other than the wind. So which just kicks up the allergies. I'm like, spring is here, and I know it because, right? Anybody else identify allergies? Yeah. So anyway, uh, if you are new around here, welcome. My name is Tim, and I have the privilege of pastoring here. And we are in, tonight we're actually wrapping up this series that we've been calling My Circle. And here's what I know is that every believer is called to love God and to love others and to influence others towards following Jesus. We call that the, the great commandment and the great commission. It's something, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, every follower of Jesus is called to those things. And so about a year ago, our church leadership came up with this phrase, and I'm sure we didn't invent it, but uh, we, th- we thought this really expresses the heart of what we would like to see every one of us here in, at Life Community If this is your home church, we would love to see you embrace this in your life. We would love to see you live this out. And it's this little phrase, my circle, my responsibility. You've been hearing a lot about it this past few weeks. And that's because we believe that that this mindset, this action is vital if we are going to accomplish our mission in our community as a church and individually, if you're going to be effective as living your life as a follower of Jesus and what he's calling you to do, uh, you're going to embrace this idea, my circle, those that God has placed in my life are my responsibility to influence towards Jesus. And so really the heart and the purpose of this series is that you would become intentional about influencing those, excuse me, in your circle towards Jesus and that you would be intentional about a few different things. The first one was this. We just want you to love people in your circle. That the heart and the motivation of reaching out to others is truly that Jesus Christ loved us enough that he came and gave his life for us. And he calls us to love other people, to be involved in other people's life. And then we just want you to start praying for those that God has placed in your life. Praying for those that God has placed in your circle. We've seen that be really powerful in families here that have been really effective in reaching those in their circles for Jesus. It's just this thing of, hey, we've been praying for him for years, and and God started speaking to him. God started moving in their lives. So we want you to pray for those in your life. Then we want you to pray with those in your life. That you would, this is a little more awkward, right? But that you would find a time when when people share things with you, maybe things are going um, not going well, hit a bump in the road, there's something with finance, there's something with, you know, a health thing, that you would actually say, well, hey, I I believe in a God who can do something about that. Can I pray with you? And then pray with them right there. Say, can I pray for you? You put a hand, can I put a hand on your shoulder? Let's just pray. Let's invite God into this situation. This is one of the best and least awkward ways that you can invite Jesus into the conversation with your friends, with your coworkers, with those in your circle, your your family that perhaps don't know Jesus. Can I pray for you? Start asking that question. Start looking for opportunities, okay? And then the fourth one, and we started talking about that this last week, is this, to share and invite, that you would share and invite. Now, let me just say about inviting, I want to add one thing to what Alyssa said. Easter is a great chance to invite family and friends and, and co-workers. Um, it's an opportunity that sometimes those that may not uh, come another time will say, sure, I'll come with you. And so we actually are having three services, a, a Saturday, 6 o'clock, normal time, and then Sunday, 9 o'clock, and Sunday, 11 o'clock. And so um, I would ask you to, uh, to think about who you want to pray for and who you want to invite to come on out. Now, to help us with this idea of sharing and inviting, um, we looked at a little scripture, and I just want to read it again to set up where we're going again here today and as we continue this conversation about sharing and questions that people have. And that is 1 Peter chapter 3, little letter that, that the Apostle Peter wrote. And from verse 13, I want to pick it up in verse 13 and sort of set the stage for what we're talking about here this evening. He says this, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Now, I want to remind you, this letter is written by Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers. Um, the, The three that were really close to Jesus, Peter was one of them. 
And what we saw last week is Peter writes this, there is actually very real persecution going on. There's, there's the persecution under Nero and Rome that's getting ready to happen, but the Christians are um, mistrusted. They're superstitious of Christians. They believe there's all these stories and rumors going around. And so to be a Christian in this time and age was very difficult. We read some quotes from history last week as we looked at that. If you missed it, you can catch up on our podcast or on our YouTube channel. But it was a very difficult time. And Peter writes this, don't be afraid, don't be frightened. And what's so significant about that is um, earlier, Peter, when, when his Savior, when his friend Jesus was betrayed, you remember what he did? He denied Jesus three times. In fact, there was a teenage girl that said, hey, I know you, and uh, you're, you're one of those Jesus people, aren't you? And he goes, no, 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 not me. Three times he denies Jesus. Not much courage. But then just weeks after this, at, at, at a day called the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, something amazing happens. See, Peter had had a transformation in his life. And one of the big transformations he experienced was he had witnessed and he, he knew Jesus died. He, he saw the tomb. Jesus was placed in a tomb. He was dead. He was buried. And then Peter had breakfast with him on the beach. And that changed everything for him. He knew his resurrected Lord, his Savior, his friend. He experienced that and it changed everything. He was an eyewitness to the resurrection. And then he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so just 50 days um, after the events, you know, about 53 days after the events where he betrays and denies Jesus three times in front of a schoolgirl, he gets up and preaches one of the most powerful sermons ever preached in the history of the world. 3,000 people come to Jesus on this day. And so Peter has some authority when he talks about these issues. And so he goes on to talk about how, how you need to be ready to share Jesus, to share your faith with people. He says this, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Revere Christ. Have an awe and a reverence for Jesus Christ, who is Lord. He's come to have this realization about who his Savior, his resurrected Savior is. Always be prepared to give an answer this is where we get the word apologetics, this Greek word, answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for what? For the hope that who has? You have. Always be ready, he says. I want you to be prepared to give an answer. You, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be able to defend everything. But here's what I want you to make sure that you are ready to give an answer and a reason for. The hope that who has? You have. Say, the hope that I have. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have, that you have a living hope in Jesus Christ. That's how he starts his little letter off, that the hope we have is rooted in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. That's where our hope is rooted in. So always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. How are you going to do this? But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously about your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So your lifestyle, the way you live your life, is a big part of this whole equation. So you're ready to give an answer, and then you live your life out in a way that others see your life and go, wow, that is magnetic. That is attractive. And so, I just want to take a moment again and recap what we saw last week and see if you remember it, because I told you this would be a helpful thing to commit to memory, commit to your heart, commit to your mind when it comes to, yeah, oftentimes when you're having conversations with people in your circle or maybe just somebody you've, you, you've run into and the topic of God comes up or the topic of faith comes up, um, oftentimes you only have a few minutes, don't you? Maybe 30 seconds sometimes. And, and this is what Peter's saying. I want you to be ready when somebody sees you and goes, well, what's different? Why, well, you're, you're a church person. You, you, you know, I think you go to church, right? What do, you, what do you think about this? What do you know about this? Well, you have a hope. Now, probably won't come in that form, right? But essentially, what, what makes you different? And so I gave you this, these three little statements that we put together into one long statement. And so I, I want to refresh your memory because when you only have 30 seconds... 
you, and you want to boil it down. This is the source of your hope. And this is something easy. You could snap a picture of this. I told you to do this last week. Uh, you could snap a picture of this with your phone and just commit it to memory. Put it into your own words and think about it. Do you have a reason? Do you have an, a, a succinct answer if somebody asks you, you know, what makes you different? Why do you have hope in this situation? And here it is. Here's our hope. Here's our eternal hope. Here's our living hope. And it's this. I believe Jesus is Lord and that he died for my sins and rose again. Could you say that with me once? I believe Jesus is Lord and that he died for my sins and rose again. Our hope is rooted in the fact that Jesus actually came and he died. He was buried. He died for our sins and he rose again. He's not in the grave anymore. Why do we believe it? That's the second part. Why don't you say it with me? I believe it because eyewitnesses gave their lives to share that message. The reason that we believe the the accounts in the Gospels is because their eyewitness reports, their eyewitness accounts, and the original followers of Jesus went on to give their lives, most of them martyrs' deaths, dying martyrs' deaths for Jesus and for the hope and the faith that they professed in Jesus We have eyewitness accounts. So that's why we believe it. I believe it because eyewitnesses gave their lives to share that message. And then one last statement here. And I kind of like this one. It's kind of catchy. Because Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection and pulled it off, I believe him when he said that if I trust him, I'll spend eternity with him. So I trust him and I follow him. Succinct. There's a reason for the hope that you have. There's the, there's the eternal hope that you have that's rooted in the fact that Jesus came to this earth and he lived and he died and he rose again. And he says that if you place your trust in him, if you follow him, you're going to spend eternity with him. And people have been giving their lives for millennia now to continue to share that message around the world. Now, what do you do when people have questions? Because, you know, you don't always have the, the, the opportunity to explain it this succinctly, but, hey, that takes like 20 seconds, right? 20, depending on how fast you talk. You're like, you talk fast. Maybe it'll take you 30. I don't know if you talk slow, a little slower. If you're from somewhere, I won't make fun of anybody in the room. If you talk a little slower, maybe it'll take you a minute. But it's easy, succinct to share, right? But what do you do when people have questions or they take a, a pot shot, because a lot of times that's how it comes up, isn't it? Is, is, is somebody's like, you know, you're at work, and people know you're, you're like the church person, you know, and uh, so it's like, oh, yeah, you're, you're the church guy, right? Or you're having a conversation, they're like, yeah, but science disproves Christianity, or the Bible is just full of patriarchal, like, misogyny. It's just pot shots, right? Just little things people have heard oftentimes, and... Um, I ask you that. Well, I think a great, quick little response, you might want to write this down. It's not on the slide. When somebody takes a pot shot, it's just this, this question. Because it always catches you off guard, doesn't it? You're like, nah, I think I heard an answer once, but I can't remember it, right? What do you say to that? And I think a great response is, and I stole this from somebody because I thought it was so great, it's this. Have you done any reading on that topic? Right? And here's what that says is, yeah, I've, we've heard that before. There's answers to that. They don't stump us. Have you done any reading on that topic? And usually it's kind of like, no. Okay, just leave it there. Just leave it there. Somebody's just taking a pot shot, right? Really, the truth is, the questions, every one of these cheap pot shots that I've ever heard, there's great answers to. You may not know the answer, but there's great answers to them. And, and smarter people than us have been thinking about them and writing about these things for years and years and years and researching. And so it's a great little question to ask. Have you, have you done any reading on that topic? So there's a lot of material out there, right? It doesn't stump us. But what about when it's an honest question? When it's an honest question, you know, somebody just has an honest question, like, I don't get how this and this go together. I, I, I don't know. How do I explain this? And I think one of the biggest keys is, is humility. You don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. And when somebody asks you a question that you're like, wow, that's a really good question. I, I don't know the answer. The best thing you can do is to just 
have humility in that moment and go, I, I, I don't know. You're like, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. Let me get back to you on that, okay? Keep the conversation open. You're like, wow, I, yeah. Or, or here's probably what happens a lot of times is you're like, oh, I, I heard a great answer to that question, and I can't remember it. Anybody had that? Yeah, like every time somebody asks a good question, right? You're like, oh, there's this great answer, and I heard the answer, and I can't remember the answer. But let me go look it up, because I heard a great answer to that. Let me get back to you on that. Humility. When, when people are asking honest questions, and you're having this, this opportunity comes up, and somebody's going through a hard time, or somebody is just asking honest questions about God, one of the best things you can do, share the source of your hope. But if it's the answer you don't, you can't remember the answer to, just, just be honest, be humble, and keep the conversation open. Let, let me go look that up. And then you know what you do? You jump on our website, hit the contact us page real quick. And we'll go, oh, man, that's a great question. I can't remember it either. And I'll call my dad or uh, the people down at Alpha Omega Institute here in town, a great local apologetics. Because there's amazing questions, answers to the questions. Okay? Now, there's some very common objections. And here's what I told you I'd do last week. Is we're going to look at three real common objections to faith. And I, I, I'm not going to look at these exhaustively because every one of them is like, a series of lectures in and of itself. So we're just going to get your feet wet. And then I've got some resources for you that if you go, um, they'll be posted on our podcast notes. But right away, if that won't happen until the podcast is posted tomorrow or so. But right after this, if you go to our YouTube channel, just hit our website, go to church online. In the uh, comments on the YouTube channel, we've got some resources. If you want to do further research and further reading on some of those topics, that's a great place to do it, okay? And the first question is really um, a fundamental question, and that's, is there a God? Is there really a God? And, you know, modern and popular um, atheists like Sam Harris and different people have really um, tried to delve into some of these questions. If you are in a uh, college, high school, or university, you, this is probably something you encounter and wrestle with on a fairly regular basis. The idea is, is there a God? Does God even exist? And, you know, honestly, most people, and statistically, I think something like, you know, 80, 90% of people believe in a God. But I think another fundamental question that underlies that question is often, if, if there is a God, I believe in God, but is God really good? Does God really care? Is there a good God? And when you ask the question, is there a God? Ultimately, here's where it goes back to. And I said, I'm not going to go real deep on this, but I just want to go th to this place. The universe is absolutely mind-bogglingly, I think that's a word, huge. We, we've talked about this before, and I don't remember the number, but it's like trillion, billion, quintillion. I mean, it just keeps going, right? Light years. Huge. The universe is, is massive. We, can, we can't even comprehend it. And, and here's what you have to, when, when you bring the ultimate question down, back, right, you dig it down to the very bottom, here, here's what you have to either believe in. Eternal energy and matter or eternal God. Ultimately. So you have to either believe that matter and energy have eternally existed in some form, or there's an eternal God, that there's a divine origination point. There's really not another option, is there? Genesis 1.1. Here's how the story starts. It says this. It just assumes the existence of God. It assumes the existence of a creator God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That there is, a, there is a creator God who created everything. There is an existing one that existed before anything else existed that has always been eternally to the past and eternally to the future existent. God, an origin, the origin. And is that an act of faith to believe that? Yes, it is. 
It is an act of faith. In fact, Hebrews 11.3 says this, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what, was, what is visible. By faith we understand this. That it takes a level of faith to understand and go, I look around me and I can understand that there must be a God. There must be a creator. What other explanation is there? And we've done a, um, we've done lectures in the past where we talked to calculated out the statistical, um, the statistical probability of the universe as we see it developing by chance, random chance, right? Like naturalism is the is the cause and the explanation. And I, I remember this quote by a famous famous scientist that came to the conclusion there must be a god. Has he looked at it scientifically? It says there's just no way this could hand, happen by random chance. And so does it take faith to say we believe that there is a God? Yes. But here's, here's, my, here's my belief is that it takes a whole lot more faith to believe the opposite. That it takes a whole lot more faith to believe that, etern- that matter and energy have been eternally existent and at some point... Um, Random processes or whatever your theory is caused everything we see and we can observe in the universe today. To me, that takes a whole lot more faith. Now you'll say, well, what about like, you know, a multiverse? Okay, now you just multiplied your problem. Can't figure it out in this universe. Let's multiply it out to other universes. Because, yeah, we're just kicking the can down the road, right? Or what about panspermia? You heard about that? Aliens seeded life here in this universe. Okay, you just kicked the can again down to an alien culture now. Where did they come from? Where did they come from? You want to argue that, right? Or how about this? Um, This is a a theory that's become popular here recently, that this is all just a simulation. Anybody remember the movie The Matrix? Yeah. No, I mean like serious people, smart people, theorize about this stuff. It's all, everything, we're just in a giant simulation. But who created the intelligence that created? What did the intelligence that origin, I mean, anywhere, you can boil it down, but ultimately when it comes down to the question of the existence of God, you have to get down to a point of an origin. That there is an origin. That there is a beginning point. Or you have to believe that everything just existed eternally, that matter and energy existed eternally. My question for you is which one takes more faith? Because neither of these are science. Science is something that's observable, that's repeatable, that's measurable, right? It's not science. Ultimately, the point of origins is a faith question. It's just a question of are you more comfortable with believing in eternal energy and eternal matter because it takes the personal responsibility out for you of having to be accountable to an original creator. And see, I believe that's what's at the heart of the question is that if you can kick it off into a can into another universe, you don't have to be accountable to anyone. And and, and the message of the Bible is that there is a God. And because he created you and because he created human beings in his image, that we are accountable to him, that ultimately life originates in him. And ultimately our choices, our decisions, our morals, right and wrong, it all comes back to since you created, what do you say? And the wise thing to do as a human being is to discover how God created and wired the universe up to be and then to align your life with that. That's why we believe living the way of Jesus is the best way to live. That fundamentally, even though it's not the easiest way to live, it's the best way to live in this world because it aligns with with the one who created everything and who knows how he created life to function. So one of the best ways, now, that's a philosophical argument, right? Right? But for me, one of the most compelling arguments for the existence of God and actually something that gets down beyond the intellectual and the the philosophical is your testimony and my testimony. See, if you're a naturalist, 
um, you could have explained some pretty weird things that happen in this world. Or you got to write a whole lot of people off as crazy. Um, I've got some cool stories. I, I was picking my mom's brain earlier today because they've got great stories that I keep pestering them. They're like, we're going to write a book one of these. Days. I'm like, write it down. Get it to me. I'm telling everybody else, write it down. Can't, can't even get my own family to do it. They've got amazing stories. But I've told you the story before about my dad seeing this giant screen TV that says, pray for Robert. And another professor at the same time seeing the same thing that says, go see him. And as they're praying, I mean, this is crazy, before there was even giant screen TVs. And they went and saw Robert, and he's in his room with the gas pipe open. God saved Robert's life that day and more people, right? My mom had another experience she told me about this morning that I'd forgotten about, where she had this, like, crazy, painful, roaring sound in her ear. And one one night, it went on for, like, a week. And one night, um, my dad prayed, God, just let me take it from her. And uh, all of a sudden, after he prayed that, he got this painful roaring sound in his ear. And he couldn't handle it. (laughs) It was like a minute. So men don't have to go through childbirth. You know, we say we have a high pain tolerance, but we all know the truth. Uh, He's like, I can't take it. So went back, um, and it went away. And he asked my mom in the morning, you know, "Did, did that pain weird roaring sound go away? And she said, yeah, for about a minute. (laughs) Yeah, true story. He figured out, whoa, something deeper is going on here. So he had actually later told this thing, whatever it was, to go away in the name of Jesus, and it went away. It was gone. Interesting, huh? I've got a good friend, uh, Jim Hale. He's an author, pastor friend. I've trekked around the Amazon with him. Um, He invited me to climb Denali in Alaska with him. I said, no way. I don't like cold and ice, but my brother does. Ask him. So my brother climbed Denali with him. But the guy used to be a, a climbing guide on Denali, and I, I called him up today because I'm like, man, I read your book. I can't remember where it was, but remind me of that one cool story. And so he, he reminded me of this amazing experience he had that he just, what, how do you explain it? And Jim was up on the side of this mountain. Way, I mean, we're talking way up on Denali, um, days hike up because it takes days to climb this, freezing conditions. And his co-guide, Bruce, broke his foot, according to some of the doctors on there. It was so painful. He couldn't walk on it. um, And they were trying to figure out what to do. Jim was depending on him for this whole trip. And Jim was just a kind of a new believer at this time. And Bruce, he didn't have any faith. He didn't, you know, believe in all that stuff. He grew up with scientist parents, and they're like natural causes and all this. And so... Um, but Jim's like, I can't get by without this guy. And they were going to have to sled him a couple days down the mountain and then come back up and try to figure out how to continue with this expedition. And so he's like, Bruce, can, can I pray for you? And Bruce looks at him and kind of like snarls at him and goes, well, if it'll make you feel better. And so Jim uh, puts a hand on him and prays for him. And all of a sudden, the pain is gone. Bruce jumps up. Remember, there were doctors on this trip that says, yeah, he's got a broken foot. Bruce jumps up, starts hooping and hollering and, like, throwing people in the snow. How do you explain that? Jim said, actually, Bruce wrestled with that for 10 years. It took him 10 years to try to, like, put that together with his whole worldview that that the only thing that exists are natural causes. Finally, after 10 years, Bruce gave his life to Jesus. How do you explain that, right? I called a buddy of mine today that I hadn't connected with in probably 10, 12 years. But I, I spent some time in Fiji with this guy, big Fijian guy named Israel, amazing guy. And when I was in Fiji, we had a teammate, my friend Kelly. And uh, she was at a missions training school on Hawaii. And Israel had just come and been a speaker at this school. And she fell just messing around, playing. She fell and, like, popped a disc out or something real bad on her back. If I recall right, she told me she broke it, but it was a real bad back injury. And in the middle of the night, I believe it was was the same night, um, God woke Israel up and told them, call King's Mansion, this YWAM base, and check on Kelly. And so he called up, 
just kind of randomly out of the blue and went, hey, I'm just calling to, to check on Kelly. How's Kelly? And they said, actually, she's had a really serious injury. So he said, well, let me talk to her, put her on the phone, praise for her, immediately healed. This is a girl that I, you know, spent some time with halfway across the world in this cool uh, missions leader. Now, if you're a naturalist, if even one of those stories is true, and, and here's why I tell you them, is because I implicitly trust every one of these people. If even one of these stories is true, you have to wrestle with that. Because here's what that tells me, is not only is there a God, there's a good God who actually is cared and involved, a God that's transcended above his creation, but also intimately involved and cares for us. And see, that's what followers of Jesus believe in. We believe in this. And, and when you share your story, you're like, wow, Tim, I don't have any crazy stories like that. Guess what? Um, get to know some people that have seen God work, and their stories become your stories. Even, I mean, you have a story of the things that God's done in your life, of the times when he's moved through you. You just share it, right? Those are some of the things. In Revelations, it says they, they conquered the evil one by the word of their testimony and the blood of the Lamb. And your story is powerful, the way that God's used you, those people immediately in your life, one or two people away that you really trust, that you can go, wow. That's a story. That's amazing. God did that. I've got moments like that that I, sh I share all the time, different things up here that God has done in my life. And it reveals to me that there's a God who cares, a God who's personally involved, a God who meets us in our need. Now, question number two. And this is something you'll often come up with or you'll, you'll, you'll hear frequently. And it's really this kind of question. It, it, is, if there's a good God, why is there so much suffering in this world? And sometimes this is motivated by personal pain. Sometimes it's more of just a philosophical question. Normally this one doesn't really bother people that much. It's more of a, let's just throw this up here as an objection that I've heard, you know, in class or something. But oftentimes it's actually a, a deep, it can be a really deep struggle somebody's had because they've gone through tragedy personally. And honestly, that's when we mostly are worried about it, right? Tsunami halfway across the world doesn't typically make you doubt your faith in God. Walking through something difficult personally and wondering where is God often does make people begin to doubt. This is called the problem of suffering in theological philosophical circles. And see, the assumptions behind this is, is, number one, if God is good, he would eliminate suffering and evil, right? Just get rid of it. If God is all-powerful, he could eliminate it. So is God unwilling to or is he unable to? Why doesn't God deal with all the pain and the suffering and the evil in the, in, in the world? And if you're struggling in a, in, in a circumstance personally right now, we've got a resource on that list that you might want to pick up. But if it's just sort of this philosophical question rolling around in your mind, what, why is that? Here, here's a great little response. It's this. If you could snap your fingers and cause it to happen, or snap your fingers and do it, would you remove everything bad from the world right now? Anybody want to sign up? If you could just snap your fingers and remove everything bad from the world, who wants to be the one to snap their fingers right now? Now, be careful. Because someone you love is sitting next to you, maybe. And they've done some bad things. Be careful. Because you have some parents in your life that maybe had some real bad things happen in their lives. They did some real bad things before they even met. But you're kind of glad that you're here. See, the only way for God to remove our primary complaint in this issue is to remove all the complainers. Because the honest truth is every one of us looks at our life and, and looks at our hearts and, and knows that, man, I've done some things. I've caused some pain. Or, or every one of us loves somebody 
that has really messed up their lives, that has really done some kind of awful things. But we don't want them judged, do we? We want grace for them. See, here's what Peter says about this in his second letter that he writes around this kind of idea. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In other words, Peter says the slowness of God to take care of some of these issues is because he actually loves some of these people doing the bad things. And he wants to see him come to true life. He wants to see him find Jesus. You know, I think we all have a couple assumptions when it comes to life and we look at pain and suffering in the world, don't we? You might have never thought of it this way, but there's, you, you, we all have a couple of fundamental assumptions that I think, whether you're a follower of Jesus or you're an atheist, there's some things we kind of share in common. And that is, number one, that there's certain things that ought not be. One of the famous writers and thinkers of the last century was C.S. Lewis, and he was actually an atheist at the time. And this is one of the things that caught his attention. He's like, why is that? That's strange doesn't make any sense. If I made it up, why, 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 don't I, why do I have this sense that there's some things that ought not be if I believe that really everything that is and everything that happens is just random chance and survival of the fittest? And, you know, why, why do I have this inner thing that senses that there's a moral standard? What is your basis actually for calling anything good or evil? And here's what C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, supposing you hear a cry for help from a man in danger, you will probably feel two desires. One, a desire to give help. The other, a desire to keep out of danger. But you will find inside you, in addition to these two impulses, a third thing, which tells you that you ought to follow the impulse to help and suppress the impulse to run away. He's like, why is that? doesn't make any sense. If, natu- if everything is a result of natural process, you, you're going to scave your own skin. Why is it that we all have that universal, like, we, we watched the hero movie, and the hero comes in and at great risk to their own life saves the day. You know, Frodo carries the ring all the way up to the edge of the volcano as it tortures him, and finally... And we're like, yeah, Frodo, you go, Frodo. Why is that? Why is it that those are common kind of stories of heroism all over the world? If everything is the result of survival of the fittest, chance, random processes, that doesn't make any sense. And this was one of the things that caught C.S. Lewis's attention and led him to have this universal sense of ought, what ought to be. We also have a general assumption that I think everyone would agree with as we look at the world, and that's that the world fundamentally is broken in many ways. That not just human beings, but like, you know, you look at weather patterns, you look at natural disasters, that there's some kind of brokenness or there's some that, that, in lives, I mean, that when you look at the world, not everything is the way it should be, right? Pain, you look at Myanmar right now in this horrible humanitarian crisis and in, in, in coup going on. It's not how it should be. Look at events that happen. When a natural disaster happens, there's this thing that rises up in us and feels like that, that's not the way it should be. And Christians agree with this. But here's, here's the difference. Christians believe fundamentally, if you're a follower of Jesus, you believe that the current world is not the final version. Paul writes it this way in Romans 8. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. And he refers back to Genesis 3, the fall of humankind as sin enters the world. The ground begins to grow thorns and thistles. Something fundamentally shifts at that point. By the will of the one who subjected it in hope 
that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. That there's coming a day when creation will be fundamentally reformed, transformed, recreated, renewed the way God originally intended it to be. We know that as the ultimate um, fulfillment of the kingdom of God. When Jesus returns, the new heavens and the new earth. And Jesus points to that day and talks about that day. And Christians have always looked forward to that day when what ought to be will be. That's why the last couple sentences of the Bible say this, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. And so, if there's a good God, why is there so much suffering in the world? Well, part of it is he's patient. He's patient and he wants no one to perish, but all to come to a knowledge of the truth. And this leads, I think, to to question three. And this isn't a question that so many people ask in these exact words, but let me show you how this works itself out. The question is this, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? See, I don't think many people actually ask that question. But fundamentally, it's one of the most important questions you can ask because it defines your life, not just today, but for the next trillion years. This question of who is Jesus and how does Jesus relate to my life? And most people, when they look at the person of Jesus, you hear, and these are the conversations you're going to have, and maybe for some of you that are just checking out God, Church in the Bible, these are the, this is the way you think right now. And we're so glad you're here checking God out, joining us online. But Jesus was just a good teacher. Like, I, I believe Jesus existed, and yeah, I've heard some really good, good things about him, Right? And we all have these convoluted ideas in our mind of who Jesus was, kind of this new, new age hippie guru kind of guy, walked around in Birkenstocks, didn't get him wet because he could walk on the water, but I don't really believe that. But a lot of people think that way, right? And he said, just taught some really cool things like love one another, and he loved the children. He hung out with tax collectors and sinners. Oh, yeah, he said, don't judge me, bro. So you better not judge me. Don't judge me, bro. You know that one. That's like the only verse you can quote from Jesus. Don't judge me, bro. I don't think bro is in there, but you never know. Right? This is the, kind of the idea that Jesus was just sort of a good teacher. He was a, a rabbi. He had some good things to say. Blessed are the peacemakers. Um, love each other. But you don't realize for so many people, because you've never really asked the question, who is Jesus? is that the things Jesus said were scandalous in the time. As you read through the, the words of Jesus, they didn't just kill him at the end. They did that when they crucified him. They, they tried to kill him multiple times. Picked up rocks, tried to stone him for the things he said. He would have been like front page tabloid stuff today, not tabloid as far as scandals when we think of um, all the scandalous, awful politicians and you know, preachers that run off with all the money and all that kind of scandal. Scandalous in the fact that the things he said against the leadership and against the ideas and against the corruption in the culture were so pointed that they wanted to kill him. The claims he made were so extreme and so wild that if he wasn't who he claimed to be, he deserved to die. In Luke chapter 7, verse 48, Jesus says this to a woman. Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, he says this some other times, and it just freaks everybody out. They're like, what? You can't say that. Well, think about it. You can, if, if I come and I trip you on the way out the door and you fall and I go, ha, 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 I wouldn't do that. But if I did that, um, you can forgive me if I ask for forgiveness or not, right? That's your choice. You can forgive me. But for somebody else over here to go, I forgive you, you can't do that. 
that's not your place. In fact, the religious leaders, another time when Jesus says this, they go, he can't do that. Only God can do that. Hmm. You think he might know that? C.S. Lewis also in Mere Christianity says this. I don't think this one's on the screen. He says, this makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. See, another time Jesus said this in John 8. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And the very next verse, they pick up, they pick up stones to kill him with. See, if you're with us in our Exodus series, you remember that language, I am, right? What is he saying? I am. I am the I am. They got it. They knew what he was claiming. That's why they tried to kill him. That's what God said to Moses when Moses asked him, who, who, am I, who, who do I say you are? I am that I am. Jesus makes this claim. In fact, one of Jesus' main topics is, is the kingdom of God that's breaking in now as, it, as people commit their hearts and their lives to following him and to following Jesus. It's breaking in now, but it will come in fullness and completion at his second return. It's one of his main topics. And in one really tough passage, he, he talks about and says, there's going to be a time when Jesus, he refers to himself as the son of man. It's his favorite way of of referring to himself. It says, there's going to be a time when the son, of, the son of Man sits on his great throne judging all the nations and all the peoples of the earth. And he'll say to some, come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And he will say, Jesus is saying this about himself to others, depart from me. I never knew you. At one point after his resurrection, Jesus gathers his disciples up and he makes this claim. Now tell me if this isn't scandalous. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority? Or don't you just mean like a little authority? Or? No, all. Do you just mean like in your little church group? No, all. All authority. Who says that? Who says that? And see, here's what you got to wrestle with when it comes to the question of Jesus. And I think C.S. Lewis says it best. He says, Jesus is actually, you don't have the option just to say Jesus was a good moral teacher. I think he was a great guy. He said great things and he did some great stuff. Do you want to love him and serve him and worship him? Nah, but you know, I think he's great. I mean, I like the don't judge me part. I'll, I'll kind of pick and choose what I want to follow. Because he doesn't give you that option. Here's how C.S. Lewis says it. He says, I'm, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Which is when people said Jesus is Lord in the in the first century, a claim that could make them, they killed Christians for that because they refused to swear allegiance to Caesar as a God. They were great citizens, but they refused to swear allegiance to Caesar as a God. Instead, their allegiance was to what? To Jesus, that Jesus is Lord, that he's the king of everything. He goes on to say this, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. See, Lewis made famous this idea. It's called the argument. Jesus was either a, a liar, a lunatic, or he was Lord. Those are the only options he left you. He was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or he is Lord. Lewis concludes his quote this way. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. 
And if you need to wrestle, if you have to wrestle with one thing in the course of your life, you need to wrestle with this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Because Jesus said this in John 14. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that's narrow. I didn't say it. Jesus did. And if there's one thing you do in this life that will define the next trillion years for you, it's what you do with this question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Would you stand? So here's what I want you to do this week. As you begin to embrace my circle, my responsibility, as you begin loving and praying for the people God's placed in your life, at work, at school, in your family, people you hang out with, your friends, as you begin taking opportunities to share with them, pray with them, see God begin to move in their lives. When you get questions you don't know the answer to, be humble. Be humble. Say, I don't know. But there's a great answer to that question. Let me see if I can find it for you. Don't let the fact that you are not an expert keep you from having conversations with people. Your story and your hope is powerful. Share your story. If you have questions, if you need help with resources, just contact us. Hit the contact us. We would love as a church, this is what we're here for, to equip the saints, that's all of you, for the work of the ministry to reach those in your lives for Jesus. We would love to help you connect you with an answer if you have a question. And if you're here and and you're not a follower of Jesus, let me just say I would love to have you either continue to wrestle with Jesus and the words of Jesus and who he claimed to be and the fact that he says he's the only way to get to God. But maybe tonight things just clicked for you for the first time. And as we close in prayer, and let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. If that's you and you're either joining us online or you're in in, in the room here today, and it just clicked for you, like, wow, Jesus, you are my Lord. You are my God. I want to invite you to pray a simple prayer like this. Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned, and I can't make it to God on my own. Lord, I want to turn from a life of sin, and I want to follow you. I want to give my life to you. I trust you fully for my salvation. I call call you my Lord. I want to love you and serve you the rest of my life. Would you forgive me and welcome me into your family? And Lord, for all, all my other friends, I just pray that you would give them the courage and the clarity to share the story you've given them and to share your love with everyone you've placed in their lives, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.